Well, hey, and welcome to episode 33 of the Gospel for Everyone podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Krismer. I'm so glad you're here. Well, in today's episode, Jason, Josh, and I sit down and we discuss apostasy, perseverance, and our role in winning those who have been hardened to Jesus. As always, if you've not yet listened to the message from Sunday, I do encourage you to go back and do so before continuing on this episode, as it's going to help this conversation make a lot more sense to you. And one last note, if you are able, meaning you're not working or or driving as you're listening to this show, if you're able to grab your Bible or at the very least a notebook to jot down some notes, Jason gives us uh, quite a few examples within scripture that I would love for you to be able to go back and reference after this episode. It may just be helpful to jot down some notes or at least be skimming through your Bible as we go throughout this conversation. Well, without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Well, hey guys, good morning. Happy Monday. Good morning, guys. Happy Monday. It's sunny again, Josh. It is. It is. I'm not saying anything. Just keep moving. (laughs) Right past it. Don't even talk about it. Let's Uh, just go. Blue skies, baby. It is. Move forward. It's nice. Hey, um, we we thought we might talk a little bit about some birthdays uh, today. I know, um, Jason, you celebrated your oldest's. 17th birthday this past uh mm-hmm. this past week we yesterday sunday was porter's sixth birthday and josh you didn't have any birthdays recently well silas was just a few weeks ago six uh, weeks, february yeah six weeks ago yeah um so we figured we'd talk a little bit about birthday traditions what do you guys got fun birthday traditions or memories well for me um Three of the four in my family all have birthdays in December. So my wife is the 17th, mine is the 28th, and my youngest is the 29th. So we're all within 10 days of Christmas. Ugh. <laughs> and so for... You got for robbed. Mo- yeah. So it's birthday for me being the 28th, three days after Christmas. Okay. So at that point... You can't really do the birthday party because everybody's partied out. By the time you get to Christmas, nobody wants to go to another gathering. They're done. Nobody's got any money. We're in Podunk, Kentucky, and uh, there's no party places to go do anything fun. Everybody's on school vacation, and so you can't even do like the your mom brings the cake to the classroom and you have the thing. No, everybody's at home doing their stuff. So I personally birthdays for Jason were just, it was just terrible. You'd get the combo gifts, like you get the remote control car for Christmas and the batteries for your birthday. And so that's the way that oh. that, that's how they that had would, a good chance. Your parents were probably working factory work. Sure. They you were probably got, in factories. I mean, yeah, you, for know, sure. you got closed down on the 25th, unless it was closing down no. for like a week. Now yeah. they didn't do that back in the eighties. No, that wasn't happening. <laughs> So, yeah, it was, uh, so birthdays for me are, yeah, they're, I couldn't, couldn't care less. Yeah. Personally. Mine, mine were fine growing up. Um, so I'm the 22nd of December. So I'm right there with you real close. Um, I, I think I might prefer now though, to be on the back end of Christmas rather than to be on the front end of Christmas. Because now the 22nd is almost always the last day before or services, right? It's we do services for Christmas on the 23rd and then on Christmas Eve. 
And uh, and what that means for me is historically I'm scrambling to get the ducks in a row for for Christmas Eve services because obviously it's a pretty pretty significant rush for us to get there. So this past year wasn't too bad, but over the last few years it's like you know putting the finishing touches on stage designs and making sure our video content's going to be good to go and all, all of that stuff. So uh, yeah, it might, mine's right before Christmas, uh, which means I don't really get to settle down and and do anything for my birthday or celebrate until after but uh growing up they weren't too bad it was always um i was always out of school which was always nice i never wanted to be go to school on my birthday and it was always almost always christmas break when uh when my birthday would come around so we enjoyed that now um i'm not a huge birthday celebration guy but porter loves his birthday i mean just being around all his friends seeing people we were down uh sunday and my family was in town from the midwest and uh so he got to see his cousins and his aunts and uncles and all, all the people, his grandma and grandpa, great grandma, great grandpa, everyone was there. So he really enjoyed that. But yeah, I'm not a big uh, holiday or birthday celebration guy to begin with. So what about you, Josh? I'm blessed. So blessed. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> I had a summer birthday, so didn't have to be in school, but could have pool parties and do things. And there was nothing else around June the 10th. Right. Nothing's happening. No. Uh, so we had a great time. I I don't like anybody who does things around the Christmas holiday. Like, like you know, I know there's some of you listening who probably got married like New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. Oh, you're like, people didn't want to go. They did. They went. <laughs> They're partied out, like you said. Mine in the summer was like, oh, we're not doing anything. Let's do a pool party. So we had a pool growing up, lived in the valley. ton of my birthdays were pool parties mm. by friends down the street. I do remember one birthday that we had. So my little brother, we're like two weeks apart. He's end of May. I'm beginning of June. We did have a combined. We rented out the roller skating rink. Yeah, baby. We did an all skate, <laughs> but, um, uh, uh, which was great. It was fun. All your friends. And so I think we did it like right as school was ending. So mine was a little bit earlier because that was the problem sometimes. Like if you want to more classmates to come you know there was no email right you know you didn't just text them or message them on facebook you're having to take those little invites you know (laughs) Uh, a lot of my friends were down aim you didn't do aim no that didn't exist yet there was no there was no messenger (laughs) there was uh the messenger was you riding that bike yeah wherever you needed to go uh so i always loved birthdays i always loved having summer birthdays um and then as i got older and moved back to the south we always did birthdays, uh, grandmas. It was fun. Always got to pick a meal and cook. So we've kind of brought that tradition over into our family. Uh, we usually uh, grab a bite to eat with somebody or let the kids pick, that kind of stuff. The boys are asking now, though, because everybody here does birthday parties. Mm-hmm. Um, and Judah is a very extroverted individual. And he's like, am I having a birthday party? And I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> so we're, we're – we're thinking about it. When's his birthday? Uh, July. It's yeah. uh, July 8th. So kind of around 4th of July, you know, probably not the best. But all of our kids, except Silas, are uh, May, June, and July. All of our whole family is May, June, and July, except our little house I. Yeah, he could uh, he could go to the rodeo for his birthday. You know, I, I couldn't think of a better way to spend a birthday than going to the world's I mean, rodeo. I, yeah, I think that's fantastic. So he's actually – so. I've not been with my boy, like at least him, Judah, since he was like six on his birthday. 
because he's been with grandparents. Mm. So we started to like go home, stay with grandparents in the summer. So he's like, Dad, you're going to get to be with me on my birthday. And I'm like, yeah, man, I'm excited. He's like, so can I have a party? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, uh, you got to do all the party favors and they got to rent the place out and got to do Peter all Piper, stuff. Peter Piper, baby. Peter Piper. Ah, but. Um, I know you guys did that too. We talked for Eli. You all went to like Great Wolf Lodge. And yeah. Instead of a big party, it just a one. Yeah. But you just not. He couldn't pick just one. It would. He just is not that kid. Yeah. So he would need multiple people at his party. Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah, we did do. Was it two years ago? For it was right after you guys moved into town. Yeah. Because uh, we did uh, climbing. Yep. Uh, over at the Our boys love Gripstone. Yep. And that's nice because it's like, yeah, you can only pick eight friends. It's only eight of you pretty manageable group and then we're there for two hours do the cake do everything and then go climb have fun that sort of thing so he really enjoyed that a couple years ago so we'll see but i i love a summer birthday so my summer birthday people let's go (laughs) we can enjoy all of that and i never had to celebrate in school i feel like it's so weird like your mom bringing cupcakes like and i'm a pretty personable guy but i was like i don't i don't want to eat cupcakes with all these people (laughs) <laughs> oh, Porter begged me. Right. That's a my youngest would just eat that up. The fact that he would get to be the center of attention for 30 kids and he gets to wear the hat and they got to sing to Ev would be like he'd he'd just own Dude, the I room. always was I was giant. So <laughs> I, I was always like, oh, we know that kid. Oh, that's funny. All right. So, real quick, birthday traditions. In Louisiana, I don't know if this is anywhere else. They you get a safety pin and you they pin a dollar on your shirt. And all day, people will just attach a dollar bill to you because they know it's your birthday. Hmm. I don't know what it is. Huh. I couldn't figure out. I mean, primarily, no, it was white people. But like, so we I, we were in a context of uh, a lot more black folks just where I worked. and that. But it was everybody, like grownups, just walking around with a dollar bill like attached to their shirt. And people like, oh, happy birthday. And I was like, oh, that's. Oh, that we're all doing this. Okay. Huh. Did you ever pin a dollar bill on they another man's shirt? Oh, no. No, no, no. Not another man. <laughs> they made me put it on mine. They're like, oh, Mr. Josh, it's your birthday. You got to put a dollar on. And I was like, okay. I don't. Why are we doing this? But it, like, you'd be Did out. Did anybody and, put yeah, a dollar on your yeah, shirt? Just out. People would be like, oh, hey, man, happy birthday. Here's a buck. And I was like. Okay. We're doing that. <laughs> Interesting. What if you pinned a 50 on there? Do they, they match it? No, uh, probably not. <laughs> but that that was a birthday tradition that I had never experienced hmm. anywhere else. So I'm guessing you've never seen that. No, I've, no, I've never heard of that either. Yep. Yeah. Only Louisiana. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. All right. Well, hey, let's dive into Sunday's message. This past week, we were in Romans chapter 11, uh, tackling the, the second bit of it, verses 11 through 20. Uh, 24. Jason, I was out this past Sunday. I, uh, like I said, was celebrating Porter's birthday down the valley. Uh, but this morning, as I was driving in, I threw on uh, the message and think you did a good job um, just kind of elaborating a little bit more on what Paul means uh, by, by those being grafted in and those branches being broken off. And um, really that that agricultural analogy he was trying to create uh, that everyone that that heard the letter originally would have would have fully understood right um so tell me as you guys were going through this sunday what were some of the things that stood out um some of the points jason that you made that you felt were were important and and impactful yeah i think <clears throat> excuse me yeah i think the where we ended was just the most important piece for me was that 
expectation of perseverance. Um, and kind of where we landed was like, it's, it's just not too late. That's both good news and bad news, I think. Um, but again, the hope of this whole section, 9 through 11, what Paul's trying to get to is just to remind the readers there in Rome who are sitting at that church that, look, God's not done with the Israelite nation. It's not over for them. As long if they just don't persist in their unbelief, there's a chance for them to get grafted back in. So that, again, I do think there's hope for all of us who have people in our life who aren't walking by faith or maybe aren't walking by faith any longer that that it's not over for them. Like there, there is, God desires for everyone to repent and come back. And, and when we do, the grace of Jesus covers that sin too. So um, that's what I hope people walked out of there with, just with some hope that it's not too late. Yeah, that's really good. Josh, you have anything that, that stood out to you? Yeah, before we even got to the sermon, uh, so I got to sit in on the 8 o'clock service. So I usually pick one to do. It just always depends on what's going on. I had something at 9.30. 11, we had uh, a good amount of baptisms. that We had six of them, which was really cool. So I knew I was going to be in the back trying to just help with that. You know, it's just a lot uh, to do. So I just sat in on the 8, kind of sat up front in a different spot. Uh, man, and just even with worship, like eight was dialed in from jump. Huh. Like Colin said, stand and sing, and they locked in. I, it was like, oh man. So man, we got to the third song that all hail King Jesus, and I was just man overcome with emotion. And I'm not, I'm not usually like super emotional. Like I'm not gonna say I'm not, but I was just sitting there, man, and kind of started weeping, just grateful for Jesus. Hmm. I'm thinking through last week, man. If you have faith, you should just respond in worship yeah and just again being in the room uh, it was a little more full than normal and just that reminder of oh there's other believers and we're worshiping and then during the sermon so I, like i was like primed and ready to go during the sermon i was like okay let's go and everybody was real interactive there was some like s and amens and i was like Whoo. i was like come out of my i was like let's go you know um yeah. it but just that i think that's what we've been like, I think we've been walking through Romans and been experiencing that first piece of we are really not righteous. None of us. None of us are good. And that has set up such framework. And now the good news is really good. Like there was still bad news in this is yeah. that, but for Gentiles, this is great news. Yeah. But don't become uh, arrogant. arrogant. Yeah. And so for me, it was, oh, well, why can I not become arrogant? Well, because I really have done nothing. Yeah. The framework that we've, you know, uh, I was talking to somebody saying they were doing Romans and they were doing a chapter a, a week. And I was like, I don't know how you do that. I, I know people do do that when they preach through the book of Romans, but they're mm -hmm. just doing like the whole chapter nine in one shot. And yeah. I'm like, oh, so I have. I know it's taken a while and we're 40 weeks in and there are some weeks that you're like, whew, but it has helped so much now that we're here. It is so much more gratitude even for me that again, just singing about Jesus, just overcome with just Thanksgiving and gratefulness. And so, man, just personally for me, it was just a really great day, I think. Yeah. After I had listened to it this morning, it just I, I felt affirmed in kind of my natural position of um, 
wrestling with the tension of the the idea of eternal security and the whole um like i it's it's never though i have faith it's never been like a oh okay i'm good <laughs> like for i've never i don't think i've ever settled into that um because a lot a lot of the reason though is because right like we all have those people in our lives and we all know the names of of people um, who were followers of Jesus and loved Jesus, and uh, now they don't as much, or have walked away from that part of their life. And um, for me, that's always been such a stark warning. Um, for me, and it there was, uh, you know, some of those instances are suffering, right? Suffering pushes people away from the faith a lot of the times. That's something that that a lot of people experience. Um, but sometimes, right, it's their own pride, and that's I think a little bit of what Paul's addressing here. I can't remember. There was a conversation I was having over the weekend and um, it just got me thinking about not only, and you guys probably even more than me in this, not only um, the people that I know that have loved Jesus or went to church with growing up, but even the people I've done ministry with, like the like the staffs of people I've I've served with and and have led kids to Jesus with and have worked hard alongside in this work of ministry and looking at that group of people I have a small handful that are still doing it that are still in it and more that that still love Jesus and have just stepped away from ministry but I mean there's just a few of us left and I would imagine for you guys thinking through who you went to school with and mm-hmm. you know the the few dozen people you remember from Bible college and man what what's going like there, there has always been this tension internally, and I felt affirmed in that tension through this text, and, and we talk a lot about that, but um, that's what I, I came away, just thinking, okay, I think the tension's actually okay. Mm. Like, I think it, it could be, right, if it's not a debilitating fear of mine, I think it could be that sitting in the tension just makes me so aware of my own humanity in my own ability to, to fall and fail and uh, whatever else it might be. So that's what I walked away with. I felt, I felt affirmed more than anything. We've got a couple of questions here um, that I'd love to dive into. There's two, one from this week, one from last week that we didn't get in time, but we thought we could circle back to it. So let me hit the one from this week first. It's, uh, it's, specifically to you, Jason. Here's what it says. This week, Pastor Jason presented the second half of Romans 11 as evidence uh, of the doctrine that apostate believers can be welcomed back into the kingdom through faith. Since the passage discusses um, the Jewish people being redeemed in the same way. As someone who has several apostate uh, Christians among her loved ones, I am eager for this doctrine to be proven True. However, I can't reconcile it with Hebrews chapter six, verses four through six. Does Hebrews teach that apostate believers are irredeemable? What other passages of scripture uh, address apostasy? All right. Well, this is a great jumping off point because I even mentioned in our sermon that um, there are several examples of people. And again, I want to make sure that I re- reiterate the idea of that I lose my salvation. That's unbiblical. You won't find that anywhere. Um, Nobody gets into the kingdom of God accidentally and nobody goes out accidentally. It is an intentional decision, I think, both ways. So this idea of that I just lost it. I had it yesterday and now it's gone. I think that's just not, not biblical. Yeah, that's really good. One question clarifying as we go in. Could you just define apostasy? Yep. What's an apostate believer? So an apostate believer, 
um, would be someone who was a true, real, right believer who then turns from their faith, who walks away. Um, so this is not a non-believer. So this is not someone who hasn't ever had faith. Um, this is someone who has been in the faith, has loved and served, accepted Jesus, prayed the prayer, got dunked, did the confirmation, whatever that looks like, whatever you think that means. But they they had a real living faith in Jesus and then eventually turned from it. So that's what we would call apostasy. And so one of the things that I shared in our sermon is I said, look, I, I don't have time in the message, but I will give you uh, some examples of that um, throughout Scripture of these warnings against that very thing, warnings against having a real, right, holy, in Jesus, connected, standing in faith, uh, relationship with Jesus to then walking away or turning away from that. So, so Brendan, I'm going to kind of put your text, that Hebrews 6, on hold for just a second. So we'll come back and address that specific issue of, is it teaching that there's no way back? So we'll come back to that piece. I just want to, I feel like we need to start on the other side, um, speaking about, is it even possible that they would be in and then out? Okay. Because that, I think, is the bigger question that many of our people have had, and I had a few of them come up yesterday. Uh, they would actually, some people would actually not even believe in apostasy. They would just say that they never had faith to begin with. And if they walked away, it's because their faith was never real. And so I want to address that piece first, and then we'll come back um, to that question. So I told you I would give you some examples and some texts, so I'll try to go a little slow because I want you to be able to write these down. You can talk to them with your te- uh, with your life group or your discipleship group, and you can uh, study the text for yourself. Do not take my word for it. Uh, and you two guys, both Josh and Brendan, feel free to stop and add in any thoughts as we go along. So yep. let's start with 2 Peter chapter 2. So in 2 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is warning about false teachers who are in the church. And, and, and here's what he says, starting in verse, oh, let's say 19. He says, they promise them freedom. So these false teachers come into the church and they promise freedom while they themselves are slave to depravity for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. Here's what he says, verse 20. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off in the end than they were in the beginning. So let's just pause on that verse for a second. He's talking about people who have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then they go back to the world. They are entangled in it and overcome by the world. And it says at that point, they are worse off in the end than they were in the beginning. And so always you got you have to recognize the fact that he says, if they were never believers, then it wouldn't make any sense to say they were worse off in the end than, than they were in the beginning. If they were just never in or never truly believers, then they would be in the exact same place that they were in the end 
as they were in the beginning. Verse 21, it says, it would have been better for them not to know the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. So again, you have this picture. It's better if they would have not known the way of righteousness than to have known it. They knew it. They were in it. It was theirs. And then they turned their back on the sacred command that was passed on to them. So again, they didn't lose anything. They, They didn't lose their faith. They abandoned it. They turned their back to it. And then it uses these two proverbs. And again, just imagine what do these proverbs mean? Of them, the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit. A sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. In other words, a sow that is washed, the sow, the the pig once was cleaned. It got redeemed and cleaned up. and, And instead of staying in that state, chose to go back to that which corrupted them to begin with. So that's the picture. So again, I think it would be really hard to look at this text and to say that this is someone who never knew Jesus. This text says exactly the opposite. But at some point, they turned their back on the command and went and went back uh, and wasn't entangled by the world and overcome, which means they were worse off in the end than they were in the beginning. So that's one. Yeah, that's good. Want to add any questions to that one? The next section I'd look at is is 1 Timothy. So 1 Timothy actually gives us several of these. Um, As you're looking through, you can find a handful of these types of warnings for for believers. I'm sorry, actually 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, and we'll just start in chapter 1, and I'll just take you through several of them here in the first, uh, in these six chapters in Timothy. 1 Timothy Chapter 1, starting in verse 18, Paul is writing to this young disciple named Timothy, who's actually now a pastor, and and I want you to hear what he says. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you might fight the battle well. What is the battle that he's fighting? Verse 19. Holding on to faith, holding on to faith. This is what we talked about yesterday. You got to keep, continue in the faith, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So Paul writes this warning to Timothy. This isn't even to the church. This is a personal letter to the pastor named Timothy that we all know and love. And he says, Timothy, you have to fight the good fight. Hold on to the faith in one hand. That is your doctrine. Hold on to your good conscience. That's your behavior, your your pursuing of holiness. You got to hold on to both of those, which some have rejected. Again, they didn't lose anything. They rejected it. And because they rejected their faith and their conscience, they suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. So they had faith and it was going. And by not holding on to their faith and not holding on to a good conscience, they shipwrecked their faith. And then he gives us an example. Verse 20, 
Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom Paul says, I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Like this is a real warning that Paul gives to young Timothy. You got to hold on to your faith and you got to hold on to your conscience. If you don't, you'll shipwreck your faith. And Timothy, you know, you know this has happened because you know Hymenaeus and you know Alexander. And so look at their lives and let that be a warning to you. Like that's what Paul says to this young pastor named Timothy. Go to chapter four, 1 Timothy chapter four. Starting in verse one, it says, Paul writing again to this young pastor, the spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits, things taught by demons. Again, he uses the phrase, some will abandon the faith. They haven't lost anything. They turn their backs. They walk away. They abandon it. And again, I would ask the question, could you abandon something that you have never obtained? Could you abandon something that you don't have? It it would not make sense for Paul to utilize this language of abandoning people, abandoning a faith if they never had faith to begin with. So again, this is Paul telling Timothy, hey, you can't be surprised that at the end of the day, there are going to be people who are in the faith, who abandon it. This happens, and you just need to know. And and he, he makes a very specific claim. The Spirit clearly says, like the Holy Spirit of God has told Paul, there are going to be some who have faith, and they are going to abandon it and, and, and begin following the teaching of demons. First uh, Timothy chapter 5. Look at verse, um, let's go to verse uh, 14. So this is a text where Paul is addressing um, widows in the church, and he's making sure that the church is taking care of widows. But he, he throws this little caveat in about young widows. And he says, look, I tell young widows, they need to go get married. Like, because they just, they're going to be overcome with their dedication to Christ, then they're going to go want to give their life to another man. And he says, I always tell them, just go get married. Just do that. Verse 14. He says, so I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, and to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. And then again, here's this example of, of people who have walked away. He said, some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. Like he says, look, there are some who have punted their faith. They've turned away. Again, if they if they weren't in the faith to begin with, what would he say they're turning from? Again, the context of this is widows who are in the church, who are living faithfully to their husband before they die, who are doing good works, but but eventually their sensuality takes over and they turn away. They walk away from their faith and he says they turn away to follow Satan. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. He says here at the end, Timothy, this is the last paragraph. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Like hang on to this. 
turn away from godless chatter and and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in doing so have departed from the faith. So again, this is a warning that Paul gives to Timothy about people in the church who have departed from the faith. They have turned away from the faith. And again, why would he? You can't use the phrase departed from something if they have not ever been a part of something. So he makes this very clear that they once professed Christ. They once had a profession of knowledge in Jesus, but then they departed. And so we just have to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to, to, um, to bypass all of these very real warnings that Paul is giving to this young disciple named Timothy. That one stands out to me as scary. Yeah. The, this one out of all of them so far for me are like, oh man, it's right. What caused them to, to uh, I was using this analogy, right, of driving down the road and having the, the lanes on each side of the road that keep you on the road. And then on the other side of the lanes are the guardrails, right? Like before you go ever go off the cliff, you're crossing the lane. And before you ever go off the cliff, you're hitting the guardrail and then you're flying off the cliff. Mm. So like what caused them to start crossing over that lane? It was this uh, uh, opposing idea of what is falsely called knowledge. Yeah. And I feel like that's an easy thing to fall into, yeah. right? Whether it be political ideology or theological or doctrinal ideology, that is just not quite what it is uh, to be a follower of Jesus. Um, so that's the one. Like, oh man, like it's close, but it's pushing you away. Yeah. Let me keep going. I'll yeah. share a few more. I got another handful here because I just want to make sure that all of you who are listening understand that this is not a one-off kind of situation that we find in scripture. It's all over. Jesus addresses it. Uh, I shared a little bit about the the four soils there that that Jesus talks about, you know, the, the seed that falls on the path and the seed that falls upon the rocky soil and the seed that falls among the weeds and the seed that falls on the good soil and that we have to persevere. Well, I talked about the fourth one, but but we can back up in that very same parable. And I want, I want to make sure that you hear what, um, what Jesus is teaching. So the first, so this is in Luke chapter eight, Luke chapter eight, and the parable starts in verse 11. He says, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Just pause for that for a second. We need to make sure that we equate what Jesus just said. The seed falls and Satan comes and takes the seed so that people do not believe and be saved. So that he makes and he, he equates this belief and saving. He puts those two together. That if you believe, you're going to be saved. So Satan comes and takes the word. So you can't believe and be saved. So you've got to connect those two dots. Believe and salvation are connected together in this parable. Satan comes to take the seed. So you cannot believe and will not be saved. So look at the second piece, verse 13. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word of God. So they have received it. 
They receive the word of God with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. And they, what's that next word? They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. So again, Jesus uses that same word. Hey, you can't believe, Satan comes and takes it so they don't believe and are saved. In the very next iteration of the parable, he says, there were some who believed. And if we're going to put this in its context back with verse 12, then we have to believe that that meant that they believed and were saved, but they had no root. And so they believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they what? They fall away. And again, what does that terminology, if there's if, if they weren't ever in, then there would be nothing to fall away from. But, but he uses that language of falling away because they had believed. So they were in that category that Jesus said Satan was trying to keep people from at the first part of this parable. So Jesus himself addresses this. Uh, let me give you another one from Jesus. John chapter 15. John chapter 15 grab it here. John chapter 15. This really falls right in line with what we saw in Hebrews, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 11. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the garden. So this is the vine and the branches. This is very famous text. And verse two says, he cuts off, the father cuts off every branch And these next two words are so important. Every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So Jesus says there are branches that are in me. That's the language that Jesus used. There are some in me. And if they, those branches that are in me, don't produce fruit, the Father just like the same language that we just saw in Romans chapter 11, he cuts them off or breaks them off. Now, everybody gets a little snip snip, like everybody gets pruned. That's different. The branches that are pruned are pruned so that they produce more fruit. But if it's not producing any fruit, it gets, it gets cut off. Um, we can go to Hebrews now. Hebrews just to give you the context of the book of Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews is all about Jewish believers who have come to faith in Jesus and then hard times came, like real significant suffering came to these Jewish Christians and they're at the breaking point where now they're they're trying to decide whether or not it's worth staying in Jesus. Or do we just go back to our Judaism? We just go back to the law. That was easier. Nobody was persecuting us when we were doing the Jewish thing. Let's just turn back and do that again. And the whole, the whole book of Hebrews is all about trying to help convince these Jewish believers that, that what they have in Jesus is so much better, greater, grander, and you can't turn back. That's the whole point. So let me give you a couple of verses in Hebrews, and then we'll jump into the Hebrews chapter six. He says, we must, this is Hebrews chapter two, starting in verse one. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, 
so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation of disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So he says, we got to pay attention to what we've heard and do not drift away. Those who drifted away from the law were punished by God. And he says, look, do we think it's going to be any different? They ignored a message by angels. We're ignoring a message by Jesus himself. Do you think that we're going to not experience the same punishment that those who rejected the law experienced? And so it's, again, a very dire warning to believers. Hebrews 3, 12, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Again, he calls them brothers and sisters. He's not talking to non-believers. He's not talking to people who are on the outside looking in. He is giving this warning to those who are his brothers and sisters in the faith. See to it. He's begging them, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. If they never believed, if they never believed, they would not be his brothers and sisters. That you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Again, this is not, this is not about losing your salvation. It is about abandoning, departing from, turning away from your salvation. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 says this, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no sacrifice for sins left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two to three witnesses. How much more severely do we think, do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the Spirit of God? Don't, again, we can't ignore these warnings. He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning, in other words, we we don't pursue holiness. We don't care about righteousness. We deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth. Like he, again, speaking to people who have received the knowledge of the truth, he says, and if you turn from that and you no longer pursue that and you don't care about that, there is no sacrifice left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment, a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. And again, don't, don't allow yourself to assume this is not people who are in because he says, look at verse 29, how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the son of God underfoot and who has treated as unholy the blood of the covenant that has sanctified them? He says that the blood, they have been sanctified by the blood. And then they abandoned it. They quit. They walked away. They rejected it, is the language he uses there in verse 28. So 
He says the only thing left, verse 30. But we know him who says, it is, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. I could keep going. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll talk about that one next week. Colossians 1, 22 and 23. Colossians 2, 6. Like there, it's just all over scripture. There that we can't ignore these warnings. These warnings are in the New Testament for a reason, that there is this expectation that we don't just pray a prayer, we don't just do the dance, we don't just go to the confirmation and then expect that we're not going to live by faith, that if we fall into unbelief, there are consequences of that. If we turn from our faith and don't choose to live it out, there are consequences and there are warnings over and over and over through scripture. So let me stop there and give you guys a chance to jump in here and ask some <laughs> questions if you got them. Or yeah, make I any le- comments. I left for a minute, made a cup of coffee, uh, yeah. and I'm back. So, yeah, just <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I missed. Uh, could, you, could you do all that again? Uh, I think I missed it. Now, I just thought if, if it wasn't possible to walk away, then Paul sure waste a lot of time telling me to stand firm. Yeah. I mean, I just was trying to like, I just was, I turned to 1 Corinthians 10. It's got one, stand firm so you do not fall. I was thinking through Ephesians, put on the armor of God so you can stand firm. Like all of these things. Philippians 2, I mean, same thing. Yeah, all these things about standing firm so that you do not fall. Again, your analogy made me think of that, like falling off the cliff. It, It seems like him and John and, just all the writers of the New Testament are pretty clear that there is something in there that I am asked to do. So then it got me thinking this. I I just, I'm trying to think as people, um, why do we, why do we think people are so animate to believe? Well, then they just never had faith in the first place. Like, why is that our nat? Not everybody's, but, some people's is it easier to then like make it make sense is it it does it does it make it easier for us then i don't have to heed the warnings i don't that's right. what i'm trying to that's think it. through like i think why it, would i even say oh well because i know people and i would never say oh they didn't know no man they knew why would i but it is that is is that what it is is it just easier to be like oh well it's much easier for me to just say they didn't have faith in the first place than to think somebody faithful would never walk away. I think it does give a a sauce a false sense of security. I think that's what it is. It if we can convince ourselves that there was no genuine faith, then we never have to worry that it could happen to us. If we believe that we now are walking with a genuine faith, then those we don't have to be uh, cognizant of any of these warnings, because if I have a genuine faith now, then I can pick my feet up and just coast along for the rest of my life, and I'll always have this genuine faith. And I, I just don't think that that's biblical. And again, I just gave you about 12, 13, 14, why I don't think that's true. And, and that's we haven't the, even got to Rome, Hebrews 6 yet. Right, right. That's the, you know, there's these, it's kind of two competing arguments um, and again, you'll hear us talk a lot about the binary and the the far left of the spectrum and far right of the spectrum are probably both wrong, right? So yeah. to your point, Josh, 
like you you uh, were questioning the Calvinistic argument of, well, they must never have, like they were never chosen. They never had faith. They were never. On the flip side, my big question through all of this is, right, like how, if the warning is so clear, how is it that there's still a, a pretty, uh, maybe prominent's not the right word or high percentage probably isn't right either, but a pretty good sized group of people that would say, no, all those people are in actually. Well, they said yes. So they are still in, even if they walked away, they have the security of, mm. of eternity. How, where does that come from? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Both of them are, are, are not great places to be. And so that's a good segue to bring us to Hebrews chapter six. So yeah. this is probably the most famous of all of the texts that talk about this issue of whether or not there is such thing as apostasy, as people who are really in and then are not in. And so let's grab our Bibles. I'll take another six, seven minutes. It's going to be a long podcast. Sorry, people. We still got one more question. Okay. Let me, let me walk through this one really quick. Because again, this is the most prominent of all of them. And this is what our question came in. Chapter six, verse four. Again, the whole context is there are believers, Jewish believers who've come to Christ. And now they are determining that Following Jesus is getting too hard, and so maybe we should turn back and just become Jews again. Um, it worked for our ancestors for thousands of years, and it was easier. So let's just go back and do that. And the writer of Hebrews is addressing that issue. The heading in my Bible, as I know they're not Scripture, but, but they do tell us the context. This is a warning against falling away. So that's that's what he's doing in this text. I really think it'd be helpful to talk about before we even get to four. Like, just set it up. Those I'm looking at that, rereading it, going, um, immaturity leads to falling away. Yeah. Right? And so some of that is like, if you're not doing the spiritual work to grow, if you've just been sitting in the seat and not putting forth some effort, what's well, much easier, right, to fall away. Yeah, so we let's we can back up to chapter 5, verse 14. It, it is the intro to chapter 6. The chapter heading doesn't really connect all the dots to the subject. So we could back up to 514. It says, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves. So there's the expectation that in our faith, we are going to continue to grow and mature and train ourselves to distinguish good from evil. And then he says, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings of Christ. Stop laying again this foundation of repentance. You should know you should repent of uh, acts that lead to death and faith in God and instructions about cleansing rites or some of your Bibles say baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of that. He said, look, all of those things, you should know all of those things. And then he gets to the warning. Verse four, it is impossible. And this comes to the question that was asked. Does this word actually mean impossible? Like, And the answer is yes. In fact, we know it means yes because in this very same chapter, he uses this word again in verse 18. God did this so that two unchangeable things, which is it is impossible for God to lie. The same word. So in the same sense that it is impossible for God to lie, which we know it is not possible it is impossible. A God who calls himself the way, the truth, the life, the God who is the truth cannot lie. 
in the same way that it is impossible for God to lie, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and are subjecting him to public disgrace. Now again, there are those who would say, well, he can't be talking about people who are in. Like these are these were false believers. They were pseudo-believers. They weren't actually believers. But I just have to tell you that that you can't that you can't come to that conclusion if you l- listen to the descriptors that he uses to describe these people. And so I want to give you um I want to share these descriptors with you and I want to connect the dots to the book of Hebrews where he uses these descriptors in other places. And and help you to see that these cannot be describing people who aren't truly followers of Jesus. So the first one he says, for those who have once been enlightened, okay, Paul uses, or not Paul, I don't think Paul wrote this, but the writer of Hebrews uses that same word in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, where he says, remember those early days after you had received the light. It's the same word been enlightened, received the light. He's talking to believers who have received the light. There in verse chapter 10, verse 32. Remember those early days after you have received the light when you stood the ground in the great contest in the face of suffering. These are people who received the light of Jesus Christ. That's the same phrase that he uses here. Those who have once been enlightened. Then he keeps going those who have tasted the heavenly gift. And again, there are some who would say, well, see, they just tasted it. They didn't really consume it. It wasn't a part of them. It was like on their lips, and then they went and spit it out. They weren't really in. And again, you have to understand that that the writer of Hebrews uses that same word to describe Jesus' death on the cross. Back in chapter 2, verse 9, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus tasted death for everyone. Now, is there anyone who would want to argue that Jesus didn't really experience death? He just tasted it and then went and spit it out. If you believe that that word that Jesus didn't really consume death or wasn't really a part of him, then all of this is negated. We don't really, it doesn't matter. If Jesus didn't truly taste death for everyone in the sense that he died fully then this is all a mute point because we're all going to hell anyway because you're still in your sins if Jesus didn't die and raise from the dead. It's the same phrase, that they tasted the heavenly gift in the same way that Jesus tasted death. And then it says, who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Well, again, they shared in it. It was like they were around it and they were in church and they saw the Holy Spirit, but they they didn't really The Holy Spirit wasn't in them. And again, you can't utilize that argument if you look at the way that the writer of Hebrews talks about this idea of sharing. Chapter 3, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, holy brothers who share 
in the heavenly calling. It's the same word. And in 3.14, he says, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end, the confidence we had at first. That same sharing is not just a peripheral uh, uh, connection with the Holy Spirit. It is full on. They share in the holy calling. It's the same word as used to describe sharing in Christ and sharing in the Holy Spirit. You can't decide that share means one thing in one text in a book of the Bible, and it means something different when the same author is using it in the same book. It's just not the way that it works. And then he says, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God. Again, that same idea. And the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. So there is a way that this text, back to our very original question, it does point to a place to whereby there is a line that you can cross that, that there is no coming back from. There is a line that it is impossible to those who once have been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, who've fallen away to be brought back to repentance. There is a place that you can cross the line and, and never come back from. But I think it's really important to notice that the issue isn't that, um, isn't that there isn't repentance available, but the issue is that they will be so calloused and so hardened and so um, moved beyond that they can't be brought back to repentance. It's not that God wouldn't accept their repentance. If they got to a place where they repented, they would be received. But they get to the place, and this is where we talk about. They've abandoned, they've departed, they've walked away, they've determined that it was unnecessary, that they have punted or shipwrecked their faith to a point where they no longer see any need to repent because they have punted the faith in which they once believed. So this is not about... If they repent, they won't be accepted. That's not what it says. The, what it says is they'll never get to the place of repentance again. So that is true. There could be a place where someone could get to where they would never desire to repent again. But we don't know where that line is. For anybody in our life, and so what I would say to anybody who finds themselves with people like that in their life, you don't know if they've moved beyond the place where they could never bring be brought to repentance. So we just continue to, to lead and pray and call and reach out and share the word of God in the hopes that the Holy Spirit, uh, Paul even talks about this, um, where he talks about people who have been taken captive by the enemy. And he says, so pray that they would be, that God would bring them to repentance so that they could be released from the evil one. That's what we have to do. So there is a line. That's true. But we don't know where that line is. And so we're going to trust that God can continue to do his work. If they will repent, he will receive. That's the promise of Scripture. And it, you keep going, like verse 8, um, the land produces. It's that analogy of uh, rain falling on, again, the whole idea of the soil. Uh, and verse 8, if the land produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless. 
and is in danger of being cursed. Yeah. Not it is cursed. Yeah. It, it's in danger of being yeah. cursed. And he says, in the end. Yep. And what's the end? Well, the end is the end, right? And so they're, they're not at the end yet. But in the end, it will be burned. And then he keeps going. Like he's like, hey, but I'm, I'm not talking to you. I'm just talking about some of you, but I love verse 11. He says, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. So kind of the theme, too, you've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Um, hey, if you if you have it, praise God. You still have work to do. If you don't have it, you better stop playing around because we don't actually know when the end is. Yeah, I don't know what the end will be. I don't know when that happens for you or you. Only God knows that. But but Paul, it, or the writer of Hebrews here, is even saying, again, it's it's at the end that they don't have the option to come back. Yeah. And I think what the danger is for our friends and family who don't know Jesus, we think, well, maybe at the, the end, at the deathbed, they'll have this moment where we'll get to present the gospel to them, and they'll repent. And what if they don't have that moment? What if it's an instant and life is taken away from them? Because we like we don't know. Yeah. And that's the scariest thing for us and the hardest thing for us to deal with. And I think that, so it's a real heart from a person. Hey, I have people in my life. So I, they need the hope of, oh, yeah, yeah, there's still time. There's still, but that time may run out. And I don't know when that is. Yeah, I bumped and, into and that, that. And that fear, right? Yeah. That, like, ah, that real burning in our, our, our hearts. I bumped into that two times this week just to put real life instances into what you're describing. Um, I had a friend, it's part of our life group, who is a nurse practitioner at the emergency room. And one of her colleagues, if you've gone to the emergency room, this is one of the, uh, f- um, the clinicians who are going to help diagnose you and give you medicines. She was a 35-year-old young lady who had asthma, who ended up with an attack, and she died. And she was a hiker and climber in great shape, a nurse practitioner, and at 35, everything hurt. She was completely healthy except for that one thing, and then her life was just gone. Um, I had one of our security guys yesterday talk about um, one of the captains of the YCSO, the Yavapai uh, County Sheriff's Office, who is in his early 50s and had a massive heart attack and died like this week. And it, again, nobody saw it coming. We don't, we don't assume that those things are going to happen. We just assume everybody's going to make it to 79 or 84, and then we'll have that moment. It'll be a long, slow death, but that's not the case. And so these warnings are very, very real. Yeah. And to Josh, to your point, and this almost leads right into our second question, which I was going to skip because I wasn't sure we had time. But now that this kind of ties the whole thing together, I think it's important, right? Like what if, what if we do get that deathbed opportunity? But then also what if, right, they have spent the last 35 years of their lives hardening themselves to the grace of the gospel. Like that's what we, that's what we had talked about last week, right? Is like, that we play a role, like God doesn't harden our hearts for us. Like we have a role to play in that. And that's a thing that, that scares me about that, you know, that same idea. It's like, what if we get there, but 
I spent the last 25 years, 35 years, just just rejecting the gospel and they're hardened to it. The question that came in uh, after we had recorded last week is this one. Here's the question. uh, One of the small group questions to discuss uh, from this past week is how do we help people whose eyes have been darkened and hearts have been hardened? Uh, Here's the real question. Doesn't verse eight clearly say God gave them a spirit of stupor? eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. How can we soften what God has hardened? That's the question that I thought kind of tied in. Yeah. uh, Again, we don't have the capacity to do that except for that we are praying for them and we're continually sharing the gospel and the good news and they see in us a hope that they desire, but we we don't get to do that. Um, we don't get to be the ones to soften their hearts. If we could do it on their behalf, we would. Um, and again, Paul even addresses that at the beginning of Hebrews, I'm sorry, of Romans chapter nine, where he's talking about his love for his people and how he would cash in his own salvation if it meant that they would come to know and love Jesus. But but he doesn't get the chance to do that. And so here's what we do know. Refusing to share the light will never help people get out of the darkness. Mm. Like we have to be willing to have those conversations. We have to be willing to to lean into those moments and to to share our faith in the hope that God will grant them a heart of repentance. So that's what Scripture teaches. Um, and I would just say that's our job. That's the role that we play. And and I love that I shared from Hebrews. See to it that brothers and sisters, no one has a sinful, unbelieving heart. In other words, he actually puts the onus on the people to see to it that the brothers and sisters around you aren't having an unbelieving heart. Like, see to it. You have a role to play in this. You get to go do this. See to it, brothers and sisters, that no one among you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. Like, we have to make sure that we're leaning into that every day. And I'm thinking back to what Brendan said when we talked, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, and you were just talking about everyone's story, that everyone is dead and made alive. There, all of us, at one point, hearts were hard. And it, again, like I, I went back when I, when I was teaching, and uh, very rarely is it the first time somebody hears the gospel, do they come to belief. I'm not saying it's not possible, right. but very rarely does that happen. I think if all of us just looked at our own stories, it wasn't the first time you came to church um, especially if you, it was older in life, you had heard it probably multiple times from people, from family members, yet there was something in you that changed. And there were probably people who went, ah, they're never going to change. Ah, it's never. Uh. But there was, on the flip side, someone, a friend, a wife, a grandparent, a parent, a brother, a sister who said, I'm going to keep believing for them until they believe. Then just kept going and telling you the gospel. And so for me, it's until they take the last breath, I believe that I serve a God who resurrects dead things. And I'm going to just keep throwing it out there and believe with all of my heart that they would come to repentance. Mm-hmm. And because that's the God we serve, and that's the hope that we have, yep. right? And again, and ultimately, because it is on their decision, I can, 
I don't sleep well knowing that they're not going to believe. But I, I go, hey, eventually they do have to believe. If I've done my part, like that's where I think some of us, maybe we feel guilt. It's because we haven't done our part like we're supposed to. And we haven't clearly presented the light. And we've let them stay in the darkness because we didn't think the light would matter anyways. Mm. And it's our own, I think, guilt that makes us wonder, instead of just going, well, ultimately it's on them. I'm just going to keep telling them. I'm going to keep preaching. I'm going to keep doing those things. And I'm going to pray they believe. Yeah. And I think that's where the question really tied in, right? Is this idea that we just have no way to know if someone has crossed the line of no return, right? Mm -hmm. We just don't. We just do not know specifically within the context of an right. apostate believer, but we just don't know. But why would we stop trying? Right. Like nowhere in scripture is our, are we absolved of our responsibility to, to preach the gospel right. and to continue to try to make disciples and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, I thought that was a good way to answer a question from last week yep. based on what we're talking about this week. And I love what you said. Hey, just look at the text. Um, and don't bring our assumptions into it. Just when we're looking at the Romans one, we we have enough. So don't forget the sternness of the warning. Yeah. Yes, God is very kind, and we are grateful for his kindness. But he is also very stern. And if you are arrogant, he will cut you off. And you need nothing else but that warning, and that has to be enough. Yeah. Right? I know we've added a ton, but like just with that, we all should have walked away going, okay, I have to keep going. I, I am not allowed to quit in this. And it, I still have to remain humble and do what he's called me to do. Like you said, I, I, nowhere are we absolved from our responsibility. Yeah. God's going to do what he does, and I'm, I'm in. Thank you. Thank you, God, for doing what you do. But I look at that verse, and again, part of it should have been a lot of humility that we left there with going, whew. Whatever we look at it as, there is no salvation without perseverance. Yep. Can't stop, church. I know we've gone a long time. Let me end with this and let this kind of be the wrap-up. I'll just say, as, as a pastor, um, I do not want our church who, I don't want true, committed, standing-by-faith disciples of Jesus to be in this constant state of doubting their salvation. I don't I don't want that. In fact, there's a great if you if you are in that place, go read 1 John. Here's a little homework assignment for you. Go read 1 John and you will see in the book of 1 John, five chapters over and over and over and over. Just go through and circle the times where he says this is how we know. Just circle the word no, K N O W. Just go through the first book of 1 John. There's I don't know, 20 of them where he says, this is how we know. This is how we know. This is how we know we're loved by God. This is how we know that we're in. This is how we know. Just circle those up and use them as a barometer to test where you are. I do not want real, true disciples of Jesus who are part of our church to be continually doubting their position in Christ. However, I would say I am more concerned about the non-true believers among us who are confident in a salvation that they don't actually have. I, I am willing, and maybe God is going to chastise me on the day of judgment. I'm willing to cause some of the 
the true believers among us to have a little more fear than they ought to than for the non-believers among us to have an assurance that does not belong to them. So I will, I will make sure that we're having these conversations and heeding these warnings to bring about a right and righteous testing of our faith as 2 Corinthians chapter, I think, 12 talks about. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. We should have a right uh, ability to look at our life and determine based on scripture where we stand by faith. So, So for those of you who are true disciples, I am sorry if this causes an unnecessary fear, but I'm willing to risk that unnecessary fear to bring about a righteous and holy fear for those who think they are in, but they actually aren't. That's really good. Um, All right, guys. Thanks for today. We'll talk again real soon. Well, all right, that is a wrap on episode 33 of the Gospel for Everyone podcast. We know this was a longer one, so we're so grateful that you would listen all the way through the end. As always, if you have any questions or comments from Sunday's message, we do encourage you to submit them at quadcity.church/romans. If you join us at that website, you can submit your questions to be answered right here on the show. Thanks again for joining us today and we'll see you again real soon.